Will you join me in, in going to God to plead for His grace as we go to His Word this morning? Our Father, we know this, it's because of Jesus that we're all here. It's because of the promise of His return that we have hope. And as we make our way through this life, it's Jesus that we follow. So we pray this morning that you would make us more like Him. Uh, that this service and this sermon and, and the sacrament uh, to follow would play a small role in your promise to take us from one degree of glory to the next. And I ask that you, you would grant us faith, uh, a faith that rests in the promise of Jesus and a faith that works unto his glory uh, as living faith. Uh, by your Spirit, supply what we need to make every effort to, to supplement our faith with godliness that we could be a people who live fruitful and effective lives unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this is kind of part two of a three-part sermon, sort of. Last week we had the first one, but really, I mean, I could do ten parts. It's just all so interconnected. So, roughly, this. So we will be reading all of ch- chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, though we'll be focusing on... 5 through 9 this morning. So if you'll stand and uh, I'll read God's Word this morning. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. The question I want to start out with this morning is where does godliness come from? Kind of a strange question to ask, I think, these days. Um, It almost presupposes that we want godliness. Words like godliness and piety and holiness have kind of fallen on hard times. To suggest a person made in the image of God or even a Christian should be godly is to open oneself up to charges of legalism. And I just want to say briefly, it is never legalism to say you must obey God's law. It is always sin and never Christian freedom to take liberties with the law of God 
that he doesn't himself offer. Legalism, rather, is to bind the conscience with a law that is not God's law. Peter here, he has the audacity in this text to charge Christians to lead godly lives. He, he even has the gall to call us to work hard at it, to expend every effort in the pursuit of a godly life. And Michael actually set this sermon up perfectly uh, by preaching last week on walking by faith. Because we know every effort alone, our own efforts, will not yield the fruit of godliness. We need the work of the gift of God in faith. If we're to lead lives which are fruitful and effective before God. So what we see in this text is that faith properly understood and works properly understood are not opposed to one another. Rather, the former produces the latter. And we also see that God's work in us does not in any way exclude our working. Rather, His work is what brings our work to life. So my desire this morning for this sermon is that uh, we will be motivated by the Apostles' words to make every effort to supplement our faith with godly qualities because of the work God has already done in us. Or to state that more succinctly, uh, kind of borrowing from A.T. Robertson, because of God's work in us, we have a part to play. Because of God's work in us, we have a part to play. And I hope that we'll leave with a bit of a fire kindled in our bellies to go out and to play that part. (laughs) So this morning, uh, we're going to first look at Peter's charge to the saints and then we will go on to look at two reasons for following this charge, a positive and a negative one. Uh, So we'll begin with the charge. Verse 5. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Peter's charge is to make every effort to supplement your faith. You may remember from back in verse 1, he said, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. And I called our attention in that first sermon to the fact that our faith is on an equal playing field with that of even the apostles and even Peter, the man who was chosen by Jesus to lead the apostles who saw him transfigured who personally was commissioned by Jesus. Our faith is on the same level with His, not because all faith is equal in strength or misery, but because we share a common object to our faith, which is Christ and Him crucified, risen, ascended, reigning, and coming again. So that's the faith that Peter says here to supplement with godliness. And it probably should strike us as strange immediately when Peter says, supplement your faith. Because we're told our whole Christian life, you don't add anything to faith. But that's what he says. He says, supplement your faith. Which means literally to further supply or to add on top of. Peter calls us to build off of what we already have, what we've been given. We're to add to that faith. 
the qualities which he has listed. And not only that, but in supplementing our faith, we are to make every effort to do so. So literally, that word is to bring alongside of our faith, or to um, add these qualities on top of our faith. The word Peter uses here contains this idea of, of haste or speed. There's to be a hustle, an urgency to supplementing godly qualities to true faith. And this is very important in Peter's conception of the Christian life. We must supply further to our faith Christian virtue. And it's essential that we not dilly-dally about it. We need to be diligent in this work. I'm the first to confess that I am a procrastinator by nature. That's Caleb too. He raised his hand. I didn't call him out. <laughs> but <laughs> but you, you know how it goes. There's a deadline approaching a long way off, and I mosey my way along. And then all of a sudden, when the deadline kind of squeezes down tight, I'm, over, I'm motivated. I am ready to exercise diligence. Somehow my efficiency and my yield get a bump of about a thousand percent when I know I have just enough time or less than enough time to squeeze the project in. I think the idea of hustle, that's the kind of idea Peter seems to have in mind. Uh, That last second sort of get after it and get it done kind of effort. Only with godliness there is no deadline. And in fact, there's probably better types of motivation, a superior motivation to, to accomplish godliness in our life than some kind of deadline but rather perhaps a motivation of enthusiasm or joy. There are those things in our lives which we are really interested in, even we procrastinators. If it's something we really like, we really care about, the dilly-dally factor seems to just go by the wayside. And I think we see as we go along through this text, there is this superior motivation which spurs us on to diligence. And the source of that motivation has in fact been given to us by Peter in the text from our last sermon. Peter begins verse 5 with the words, For this very reason. We always want to pay attention to those conjoining clauses. For this very reason. For what very reason? This effort to supplement our faith finds its source in in a prior cause. He had said in verse 3 that Jesus' divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Granted all things. That means we already have them. He also said in verse 4, He has granted to us His very great and precious promise. Again, already ours. The promises are already ours. And He continues in verse 4 to tell us that we already have escaped corruption through those promises that is in the world because of sinful desire. So all of that we already have in our possession, in our grasp. Uh, A.T. Robertson, what I referenced earlier, his exact quote says, because of the new birth and the promises, we have a part to play. So this, to me, resolves any tension we might feel over Peter commanding that we add or supplement our faith because it is that very familiar truth that we're most familiar from with Paul 
And he says, you're made new in Christ. Therefore, labor to put off the old man and to put on the new. Or we have died and been raised with Christ. Therefore, die to sin and be raised to life. God is consistent and, and he says things in different ways through different authors, but it's the same truth. So we supplement our faith with godly qualities because what God has done through us in Christ both enables and motivates a life lived unto God. So any Christian character outside of God is little more than a wisp of smoke. A false virtue, maybe perhaps the side effects of common grace, but little more than that. But in Christ, we have a part to play. So now, what are these qualities that that Peter has us to put on? Uh, There's a fair bit of, of variance among theologians about the nature of this list that he has here. Um, the question is, is it kind of an ascending staircase, logically one on top of the other, or is it more of a literary device used to say, add all of these virtues to faith? Um, Calvin believes it's the latter. He says, there is not here, however, properly a gradation as to the sense, though it appears as to the words, for love does not in order follow patience, nor does it proceed from it. Therefore, the passage is thus to be simply explained. Strive that virtue, prudence, temperance, and the things which follow may be added to your faith. Uh, Another more modern commentator says he he believes the other side, that there is an intentional gradation to the list. He says, Peter presents his virtue list by using a literary device fashionable during the period called a sorite or sorite. Am I familiar with that? He describes it as a set of statements which proceed step by step through the force of logic or reliance upon a succession of indisputable indisputable facts to a climactic conclusion. So I think kind of given enough time, we could come up with a a way of tying all these virtues together and and stacking them upon each other. And it's certainly possible that Peter was kind of playing off a gradation of philosophical values current in his setting. Uh, And it's definitely true faith, which he begins the list with, is the foundation of our virtue and love with which he ends the list is kind of the height of all Christian virtue. Uh, But that said, I kind of tend to agree with Calvin that it's not necessarily intentionally a gradation. Um, You know, virtue could be said to flow from knowledge even as knowledge could be said to flow from virtue or or self-control from steadfastness as steadfastness from self-control. But either way, these this list of qualities is the qualities that Peter would have us to adorn our faith with. So the first, vir- uh, first quality there is virtue, which is moral goodness or excellence. It's with, with all moral qualities good things that we possess it it proceeds from God himself in fact this same word was used of Christ in verse 3 in this chapter it says through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence that's the same word excellence or virtue and we need to remember that much of Peter's purpose in this letter is to fight the false teachers which he describes in detail in in chapter 2 and so virtue is, is the complete opposite of the false teachers. 
who seem to hold no real moral goodness at all. But Christians are to be virtuous people. We're not to be putting on greed and deceit. And we're to work at being moral people. And we often say Christianity is not about morality. And amen. But morality is a result of Christian faith. The next one is knowledge. Uh, knowledge at its most basic, this word just means the, the act of knowing something, to, to know. It's a thematic word in Second Peter, however, and it very often refers to the knowledge of Jesus, particularly in an intimate or a saving kind of way. And we are called, again, as Christians, to know God, to know truths about God, to know the law of God, and beyond that, to know God intimately. Uh, self-control, temperance, or the mastery of desire and passion, especially sensual passions and appetites, which is, again, complete opposite of the false teachers. Because we've been freed from worldly desires, we are no longer bound or controlled by them. And therefore, we labor to live self-controlled lives, free from addiction to many things, food, money, lust, entertainment, substances, Right, to have self-control. Steadfastness, just patience, endurance. Again, opposite of the false teachers who, who promote immediate gratification. It's a faithful waiting on the Lord, holding up even under persecution. Next is piety or godliness. Reverential respect toward God. Piety is another term that could be used perhaps in older translations for this word that, that's translated godliness here. And I think piety has become something of a swear word. If you, if you say somebody's pious, that, that's a negative thing. But piety is good. We want to live reverential lives before God. We want to lead, dare I say, religious lives in the best sense of the word. Lives wherein we spend time in prayer, word, and worship. Where family worship is a part of growing up in a Christian home. Where corporate worship and, and corporate fellowship with God's people are a part of the natural rhythm of life, the stones in the river around which everything else flows. These are good things. Now, pietism, on the other hand, where this kind of personal holiness how many hours you spend in the week in the Word, how, how raw your knees are from praying, those things kind of become a badge of honor that you present toward the Lord. That's pietism, and that is unhelpful. But godliness, piety, these are good things which Christians should count both a duty and a privilege to add to our faith. The brotherly affection or brotherly love, uh, that word Philadelphia, it's the opposite of that greedy take advantage of everyone attitude that the false teachers have. We are all adopted sons and daughters of God. We are truly family. And Stan and I were talking yesterday that it was good just to get together. and It was a, a family time, right? We're family. Brotherly love. Finally, the sum of, of all Christian virtue, the height of it, love itself. Love denotes commitment, devotion, affection, 
it is the greatest of all Christian virtues. It's to be applied to God and to neighbor as the height of the law, to brethren first, as Michael read this morning, but also to all the world. Love, even according to Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 13, is superior to hope and faith. So these are the virtues we are to expend every effort on, and we could spend a whole sermon or a whole series on each one. But let's not forget that the reason we can put them on at all is the new life and the promises that we have in Christ. So we have to let the effectiveness of Christ's work serve to inspire us to press on in that privilege and that labor of putting, putting those virtues on. Peter goes on here in verses 8 and 9 to provide for us two reasons why we ought not to why, why we ought to make every effort to supplement our faith with godly qualities. There's one positive reason and one negative. So first the positive from verse 8. He says, For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this verse describes what these qualities do to a person. And what they do is they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus. Wouldn't that be the worst the, the worst description of a Christian is unfruitful or ineffective, especially to hear from Jesus himself. We could state it the other way around. We could say that these things render us effective and fruitful in the knowledge of him. Now, this summer was the first time I kind of had an opportunity to grow a garden in, in earnest. And uh, I have many hobbies. My favorite hobby is collect, collecting hobbies. <laughs> and, and when learning a new hobby, I become obsessive about it. And I start just absorbing mass amounts of information. And I have vacuumed up a lot of information over the summer about gardening. And you maybe would expect that the success of my garden would match the knowledge that I've accumulated. But the truth is, I've had a so-so first attempt at it. It's not that great. I've had some successes, but many failures. And the reality is, and this is really true with everything we do in life, knowledge has to be implemented before it bears fruit. Now, I can read all the books, watch all the videos, read all the articles, listen to lectures I can find on gardening, but if I never grab a shovel and plant a seed, what's going to happen? I'll become puffed up with theoretical knowledge, thinking I know everything there is to know about gardening, but have no practical ability to carry it out. So we don't want to be ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pilgrim's Progress, there's a conversation between faithful and Christian. Faithful says, I see that saying and not doing, or seeing and <laughs> saying and doing are two different things. And hereafter I shall better observe this distinction. Christian says, They are two things indeed, and are as diverse as the soul and the body. For as the body without the soul is but a dead carcass, so saying, if it be alone, is but a dead carcass also. The soul of religion is the practical part. Pure religion and undefiled, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. 
to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And as James teaches us so well, a faith without works is a dead faith. So if we know a lot about Jesus and about his word, but do not exhibit these qualities that Peter describes for us, we need to be re-examining ourselves. You know, if we can discuss in detail the finer points of the infralapsarian-superlapsarian debate, but lack the confidence in God's providential decrees to press on in simple steadfastness, we may have a problem. Or if we can wax eloquent about the hypostatic union, but have no self-control, or if I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, or if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains. Or if I give all I have away to the poor and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love. You may have a problem. The soul of religion is the practical part. Now, of course, I know that you all know me well enough to, to know that I'm not poo-pooing knowledge here or even the obtaining of theoretical knowledge. Knowledge is, in fact, one of the virtues in Peter's list. We should seek an intimate knowledge of God. As I said this Wednesday, we read from Psalm 111, the works of God are studied by all who delight in Him. We should labor to know things about God. We should know specifics about God's revelation and not just the general core message. We should instill in ourselves and our children the language, the terminology, the history of the faith once for all delivered. But we cannot let these things be that vain knowledge which puffs up. We need to have them serve us as we seek to live out the Christian life, walking by faith. And notice what he says now. This is, I think, critical. If we're not going to fall into despair looking at this list. He says, For if these qualities are yours, and increasing, and increasing, an ongoing increase implies that there's not an end. From the youngest Christian redeemed a week ago to the most mature 100-year-old prayer warrior, born as a covenant child, never knew a day without Jesus, the, the, the call is the same. These qualities are to be yours and increasing. Day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, one degree of glory to the next. No one arrives in this life. Whoever says he's arrived is the furthest off. Calvin says, as it is a work arduous and of immense labor to put off the corruption which is in us, He bids us to strive and make every effort for this purpose. He intimates that no place is to be given in this case to sloth and that we ought to obey God calling us, not slowly or carelessly, but that there is need of alacrity or cheerfulness. As though he had said, put forth every effort and make your exertions manifest to all. So growth in godliness is an ongoing, lifelong pursuit. I think that truth, I know that truth, is hard for me to accept. I want to arrive. I want to be done striving. I want to be done with sin once and for all. 
and it is arduous to press on in this task. But I think the more we accept that this life is more of a toiling amidst the weeds of the fall, the easier it will be to get up and get to our task. The hard work of adding adding godly virtues is not a joyless one. In Christ, we have all we need for life and godliness. And the fruit that we're transformed into a people who are effective and, and fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's no greater privilege than to be fruitful and effective in a life lived unto God. Now lastly, the negative reason in verse 9. This is what takes place for those who do not possess these qualities. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. That's quite common in Second Peter and in Jude to kind of contrast the true believer against the false believer, especially the true believer against the false teachers. And I think that's kind of what Peter's doing here. Um, in contrast to the true believer who has been freed, who has been released from the corruption of worldly desire and exhibits self-control, the false teachers are consumed with desire, sensuality and greed. They're so consumed with their desires that it's just right what's in front of their face. That's all that they can see. They're so nearsighted, they're just blind. Paul says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Kind of interesting. I don't know really what to make of it, but that verb, having forgotten, is really having received forgot forgetfulness. Having received forgetfulness. I don't know if that's from the, you know, the God of this world or where they received it from. I found that interesting. But it, it's good. It's hard to categorize these people, I think, there's a category of Christian, as we see in the parable of the soils, which kind of springs up on first hearing the word, but in time dies due to the work of the evil one, distractions of the world or persecution. And these people first accept the gospel with eagerness. They're active members in the covenant community. And then when they walk away, it's difficult for us. It's baffling for us. And we don't know what to make of them. What, what do we call these people? How do we categorize them they're unbelievers certainly but are they in some way still Christians and I would say so I would call them apostate Christians and they don't I think just to say well now they're pagans is to give them a bit of a pass it's worse than that they are covenant breakers these people have in a very real sense taken for themselves the name of Jesus and claimed his blood for their sins, and then turned and spit in his face. So I think that's the sense when Peter says this, that they have forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. This is exactly how Peter actually describes the false teachers in chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. He says, For if after they have escaped from the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness 
than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. I'll conclude with this. If we are in Christ, we're not as those false teachers. We have confidence in Christ. We will look at next week examining our calling and our election, but we have confidence in Christ. We are alive in Christ as true Christians. We have true saving knowledge of Him. And thus His glory and excellence have provided for us a richness of promises which has freed us from corruption. His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Therefore, godly fruit will be progressively cultivated in us by the Holy Spirit. And so, we work. That's not a normal application of those truths, but it's true. And so, we work. Not to earn favor, but because we have received favor. We strive hard, expending every effort to put on godly qualities because we have been given the knowledge of Jesus, which is not in vain, but yields 30, 60, and 100-fold. Amen.